0: And I'm Tracy Holloway. Tracy, uh, 2020 will obviously be remembered for a lot of things, no doubt. You know, after the pandemic, the all of the uh, the political stuff that we saw, the extraordinary uh, sort of year in economics and the stock market and everything. Somewhere down the list, maybe like down like 50 or 70 or 90th in terms of like. The uh, the things that people look back on, I would say, is kind of a the year of the SPAC.
1: <laughs> yeah, certainly, definitely. If you're in capital markets, it's the year of the SPAC. And I think um, I'm trying to remember the latest numbers, but I think it was something like sixty billion dollars raised in 2020, which was more than the previous ten years combined. Yeah, something like that.
0: Right. So we've just seen this extraordinary surge. For people who don't know, it's like uh, uh, these vehicles where people buy into an IPO and then the company has some certain amount of time to then go out and actually acquire a company, uh, bring it public, subject to the approval of the people who bought into the IPO. We've seen a lot in the uh, electric vehicle space. We've seen a lot in other technology, other areas, but just generally, A, it exploded and B... You know, once like many things in 2020, not the type of thing we expected to see in the first half of the year. I think like thinking back to March, April, May, we would not expect it to be such an extraordinary year in capital markets.
1: Right. And I think one of the reasons that specs tend to draw a lot of attention is that uh, most people or a lot of people associate them with these sort of like pre 2008 financial crisis excesses. Uh, so there's this idea yeah. that there's so much money sloshing around in the system, people are sort of desperate to put it to work. So they'll just stick it into a blank check company, uh, not knowing what that company is eventually going to be and just sort of hoping um, that their money will get deployed in one way or another. So I think a lot of people look at it as another example of froth in the market. But again, as we discussed on uh, a previous episode with uh, someone who is actually running a SPAC, there's also an argument that this makes sense. This structure makes sense for a lot of companies in the market.
0: Yes, I think that's right. For a lot of companies, it makes sense. And I think that's also um, a part of the change, which is that not only were I I would say were SPACs maybe associated with speculative excess, I think they were associated to with like shady companies that is like, right. OK, if you had a asset, if you had a company that couldn't do the typical IPO route couldn't really withstand scrutiny. Maybe you try to take it public via SPAC. And I think it was sort of like, you know, the it, they didn't leave a good uh, flavor or taste in people's mouth. And I think that's changed. And I think that one of the things that we saw this year is like more seeming higher quality assets came public that way. More um, investors and banks with sort of uh, reputable or strong reputations willing to or eager to use this type of uh, financing capital markets vehicle for this. And so maybe they're uh, they're shedding some of their uh, previous uh, reputation, which was uh, sort of not that great.
1: Shedding the SPAC stigma.
0: Shedding the SPAC. That's well put. Shedding the SPAC stigma. I mean, we'll see. I mean, who knows? Maybe in 2025, we'll look back at the class of 2020 SPACs and they'll all have flopped. There have been some flops. I mean, like, You know, obviously not flops, but, you know, controversies. Uh, Nikola was a very popular uh, spec that surged to the moon for a while. And then all kinds of questions arose about its business and its CEO left. So there are still like a lots of questions about the types of companies coming uh, public this way. But uh, it's certainly a um, it does not seem to be going away anytime uh, soon, which means we need to learn more about uh, learn more about them.
1: Yeah, I agree. Let's do it.
0: So we're going to talk about SPACs. We're also just going to be talking about the extraordinary moment for capital markets in general. I'm very excited about uh, today's guest. We're going to be speaking with uh, Larry Wieseneck. He is, uh, for the last three years, he's been the co-president at Cowan & Company and has a long career doing global capital markets at Lehman, uh, Barclays, and so forth. And so we're going to get the, uh, the lay of the land from Larry. So, Larry, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Well, Joe, Tracy, thanks for allowing me to join you. Really appreciate it.
0: Uh, I'm trying to think where to start, but what do you sort of uh what do you do at uh Cowan and Company? Describe Cowan and Company's sort of role and your role within the bank.
2: Sure. Well, look, I'll I'll start with Cowan is a, you know, 100 plus year old institution uh, that uh, really was in some respects uh, reborn about 10 years ago uh, when uh, the old Cowan, which had been bought <coughs> about two decades ago by Sockgen, uh, had been spun out and went into the financial crisis probably a little bit too small and uh, too narrow uh, to navigate the period of 08 and 09. And it ended up merging with a uh, alternative asset manager, Ramius. And so the current Cowan is really about 10 years old and is a combination of the legacy of what was Ramius and what was Cowan at that point and uh, really over the last decade the firm's grown enormously and we're but but nonetheless we're a pretty targeted institution uh we're uh, about 1300 people uh and we focus uh disproportionately although not exclusively uh in on the US markets and in particular uh on uh the arenas of equities credit uh, and banking uh, delivered to uh not only but again predominantly uh growth sectors of the economy uh, and uh, in addition, we have an asset management business, uh, which is the remnants of what was Ramius, uh, where we also try and as much as we can focus on areas where, where uh, we have a core strength and knowledge base. Um, and again, it tilts more towards disruptive areas.
1: So with your advisory hat on, I'd, I'd be really curious to hear um what you've heard from clients in 2020. So you have a really good perspective on uh, what corporates are basically looking for, what they've experienced in a a really strange year that I think was probably marked by a a real sense of urgency when it came to raising funding uh, around springtime during the worst of the market sell-off. And then we've sort of segued into a, a moment where people are talking about bubbly markets, excess liquidity, sloshing in the system, uh, and this idea that capital is sort of free and available to everyone. I'd, I'd be curious if you could give us some, some color on uh, what you've seen.
2: Well, Tracy, it's a, it's a great question and one that would take a lot longer than the podcast to to answer, but I'll, I'll try and maybe <laughs> um, pick a few core elements and then we can delve into it deeper. I think the first is that Having been around the capital markets now for you know, longer than I'd like to remember, it's always been the case that we're reminded in periods of dislocations of how strategic financing decisions of the past uh, actually are um, when uh, challenges come about in the broad economy and the capital markets in specific. Many a time in good times, folks believe that the financing decisions are a choice for the treasurer or the assistant treasurer. It's not a boardroom kind of conversation. And that always comes to roost when we hit difficult times. And that's true whether you look back in the 70s, the late 80s around the SNL crisis, whether we look at the internet bubble, whether we look at 08, those who didn't set up their foundation with a strong, you know, think of it as you have to build the basement first, then build the first floor, then the second floor. The, the capital structure of a company is thats that, is that that basement, that first floor, the foundation. And so what we saw when we hit March and we saw the beginnings of the acknowledgement of what the pandemic might be is many companies found themselves where either their plan on the business side was being blown up or maybe their business was actually going to be able to be somewhat resilient, but they were worried that the financing plan that they had set in in place to help them with the business side wasn't as robust as they thought, and what am I going to do if I want to grow I need more capital and I don't have it on hand that was a big question that was you know in every boardroom in, in, in March or April so I like to say financing is always strategic but we're reminded of that when we hit difficult times
0: so we mentioned that uh, you know especially the second half of 2020 uh, sort of turned into the year of the SPAC unexpectedly, just an absolute boom. Traits you mentioned it, bigger, more money uh, through these vehicles than I than I think the last 10 years combined. When from that perspective that you described, that financing decisions must be sort of like strategic to the company. What was it about this moment in particular that is like, this is the vehicle. For right now? What is it on sort of the investor side, that people you saw want to put money to work in this way that they're willing to buy into these? And what was it on the sort of uh, the sell side uh, that there were um, companies that were ready to and eager to uh, go public through this route?
2: Yeah, well, you know, I like the way you actually even coined the question, which is the two sides of it, which is what were the issues why people would finance the SPACs And then why why do companies sell into uh, SPAC? And I think that the first thing to recognize is for many folks who have not been around the capital markets, they see all of a sudden on Bloomberg, you know, uh, all these SPACs being done, and they think that this is some kind of new creation. The reality is SPACs have been around in one form or another uh, for more than 20 years. And if we think about blank check corporations, they go back, you know, you can go back to the 20s and 30s of the last uh, century, and they were blank check companies. So like a lot of financial engineering or a lot of financial structures, the market and the technology have to align for them to become broadly utilized. And I think that's something that when we look back at 2020, we'll, the question really is, why in 2020 did they line up so well that it became you know commonplace? And I think that goes to this issue of the financing is strategic question, which is that up until February of this year, I'd say most of your listeners had never heard of a SPAC. And then something changed. And what changed was that for particularly very, very um, growth-oriented companies, companies that maybe in the past would have gotten their next round of funding in the private market and waited another year or two before going public. What happened was the private market ostensibly dried up, um, and what I'm about to say here is true both about venture-backed opportunities, but also it was true in the PE world. So if you look at general private equity investment, um, when when sitting around with uh, you know financial sponsors in March and April, I can tell you the one thing they weren't talking about was how they were deploying new capital. They were focused on their existing portfolio. So with that going on if you're the CEO and the board of a company, that your growth plans are um, potentially even taking off because maybe you have a product offering that is actually gonna benefit from the pandemic. It could be disruptive consumer. It could be in things like sustainable energy, or it could be in areas like uh, you know energy transition where those opportunities are really unaffected or they're accelerated potentially by the events of what's happened in the pandemic but you don't have the funding you need. In that scenario, all of a sudden, a privately negotiated transaction with an entity that brings capital to bear becomes very interesting. And um, because of a number of other developments in the 18 months prior as to how deals were getting done in the SPAC market, it allowed for a path to real capital for the companies um, so long as they were public comp- public market ready. And that's where the, the period of kind of the second quarter really changed things.
1: What does public market ready actually mean in this context? Because I, again, I, I think Joe mentioned this in the intro, but when a lot of people hear the word SPACs, they think that this is basically a way of um, sort of listing light. You, you don't have as strict uh, disclosure requirements and maybe you can get away with a few things like using um, forward earnings projections and, and things like that, that you wouldn't be able to do if you went down the traditional IPO process?
2: Listen, I think it's a really interesting point that as we sit here today, looking back on 20, we can say that uh, the events of, I wouldn't just say 2020, I'd say 19 as well, as we started seeing some real significant increase in direct listings. What we would say is companies that want to go public in the US now have three paths available to them. They have standard IPOs with all of the regular structures around that, They have direct listings and they have sale to a SPAC. And so I'll address particularly your question about sale to a SPAC, but broadly speaking, I'd say a market where there's more choices and companies can match what they feel is appropriate for them to the uh, best path um, is probably a better market overall. It's a more complete market. And, And again, we're not here to talk about direct listings, but there are a lot of folks who are big advocates for that as well as an alternative. On the SPAC front, I think probably the two elements that were the biggest beneficiaries for companies thinking about going to the market that broadened it was, one, the fact that they can use forward projections. And so we have to think about the world of a company that is investing for the future, that is has limited cash flows today, and historically uh, would be challenged to get that story across to the public market. And the reason it would be a challenge is they have to rely on historical numbers, which might be just investing cement in the ground or whatever it might be to build that business. And they might be a number of years away from having real cash flows or, or significant revenues. When you have the ability to use forward projections, and then an the important part of the second piece, many of these deals, the way that they get done is in front of the um, deal being announced, the M&A deal being announced, they line up a pipe investment from a series of institutional investors. And those investors have the opportunity to look at those forward projections, to meet with management and have in-depth conversations, much more in-depth conversations than they could have in an IPO process. So if you think of it, think of the lead investors in an IPO as being similar to the lead investors in a pipe tied to a SPAC deal. The difference is there's a lot more education that goes on for that pipe investor in a SPAC than they get in an IPO process. So for a company whose forward or their future is fairly different than maybe what their history was because of where they are in their evolution, that process allows them to raise capital from these pipe investors, which then when that's lined up, that's when they have Completed the necessary requirements to sign a merger agreement. And that's when the deal gets announced. And then months later, the deal closes and ultimately it starts to trade in the public market. That process that moves forward that discussion with investors, comes up with what price is a clearing price, and allows them to have certainty before they announce it is extraordinarily interesting to many companies. And it's not just because they can use forward projections, it's that they minimize the many, many months of risk that's involved in a standard IPO process where when they finally go to the market, if the market's not there for them, bad timing, et cetera, they have a failed IPO. When you have this negotiated process with the SPAC and with the pipe investors that predates the merger agreement being announced, if the deal doesn't come together, the market doesn't know about it. It was never out there. You don't have all the embarrassment of a IPO getting priced at the you know below the range, whatever it is, and that doesn't appeal to a certain percent of the uh, corporates out there. Certainly not everyone. We still have a very robust IPO uh, you know uh, market, but for some companies, it's a better path.
3: Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC.
0: So, you know, it's interesting. You you talk about uh, transformative technologies, new technologies. There have been a lot in um uh, the electric vehicle, autonomous vehicle space, vehicle tech, clean energy. Many of the companies, it's not just that the pe- the future is not going to resemble the past. It's that There's almost no present. Maybe it's just a technology still in commercialization or with revenue expected to be a few years off. You know, I'm thinking about like one of the big IPOs, for example, this year, uh, the software company Snowflake, which has a real business, um, but still being valued at sort of multiples and expectations way into the future. And maybe someone just drew a ruler and sort of projected where their earnings are going to be in 2027 and are coming up with a multiple on that. Is there something fundamentally Different. I mean, all companies are, all growth tech companies are fundamentally, you know, about the future. Is there something fundamentally different about, say, a company that has some projectable business like an enterprise software company versus a transformative or new tech in which there's nothing really even to extrapolate yet in terms of why the SPAC route may make sense for them, whereas something is slightly more predictable and established. The IPO route makes sense for the for them, like like a snowflake.
2: Yeah, I do. I do think that you highlight an interesting point, which is, and it maybe gets a bit more to the value of the SPAC team and why, when companies look to sell these days, they're often doing what has become known as, in quotes, a SPAC off.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about SPAC off.
2: Yeah, they're not necessarily responding to the first SPAC that that calls them up. Yeah, and the reason for that is that you're exactly right. If you're a company that is now getting to choose how you're going to enter the marketplace, let's just compare that that SPAC, the, the company and their board looking at selling to a SPAC to going the IPO path. One of the things they would do in an IPO path is they would think through, hmm, I probably need to bring different people onto my board as a public company uh, than I would have when I was a private company. Maybe some of the VCs are going to come off the board, and we're going to put some you know, folks who have more public market experience onto the board. When selling to a SPAC, I can do that, and I can do that by selecting a SPAC that has expertise in my area. So let's just say, for example, I'm in one of those hyper change arenas. I'd rather sell, if I'm a financial tech company, to a SPAC that has some significant fintech executives involved with it, because I'm basically picking, at a minimum, two new board members, well, one or two, depending on the structure, but two new board members for now when I'm a public company, who's going to have oversight of the company? And so one of the things that is really important is, what does the SPAC bring to the table? What are the backgrounds of the folks from the SPAC who will ultimately go on my board? Maybe it's, they have real good connections in the industry I'm selling to, and they'll help accelerate my business. So the decision of what SPAC will I sell to becomes very similar to what private equity fund would I sell to if I was going private? Or if I have a choice of growth equity funds, because I'm now doing a growth equity round in the private market, um, who would I want to come in to be my partner for the next five years? So think of that process of selecting a, a SPAC that a company sells to as who is going to be part of my oversight. And part of my ecosystem to help me complete my plans, because all these companies, what they really want to do in the public market is basically execute on their plan. And that's why SPACs that have a lot of expertise are emerging as being, you know, honestly, better bidders than those who are uh, just, you know, a few folks have come together to try and put some capital to work.
1: So... Just on the SPAC off point, I mean, one of the things you drew an analogy to, to private equity just then. One of the things we heard about private equity in, in the latest cycle is that targets became fewer and fewer um, as as there was more money poured into alternative assets. As the SPAC space uh, heats up, and you know, lots of people are setting these up, and lots of people are looking for targets to uh, to merge with. Um, how competitive is it at the moment? And, you know, like, what does a SPAC off actually look like in, in your experience?
2: Like everything else, it's almost like if you say, uh, if you've met one family office, you've met one family office, or same could be said about private equity. Same could be said about how, how a company decides to run their, what's really an MA and a process, um, which is a SPAC off. The difference is, and this is important for your listeners to understand, Unlike a normal M&A process where the deal ends when the other side says, I'm willing to buy you at a price and he, and I have a money good in a SPAC. The capital markets decide whether that's a proper deal or not because it has to be funded. And, and that's where the combination of what's known as the D-SPAC, the process where the original investors in the SPACs, or at least those who are still holding it at the time a deal is announced, they get to decide whether or not they want their money back or whether they're going to roll into the new company. And that's also where in the moments prior to that, uh, the pipe investors, which are generally not only, but generally very large institutions that um, are public market investors, um, they make that decision. So you have to first think about a SPAC is finding the right partner who can deliver two things. One, they can really help my business grow. I'm now saying mine, meaning on the company. And secondly, they have the credibility in the marketplace that they're going to help me um, get the capital that's at the end of the rainbow. The end of the rainbow is that these companies get capital via both the pipe and what's known as the DSPAC process. So when when we're advising, let's say, a company on a SPAC off, um, we're much more focused on uh, the quant the qualitative elements as opposed to the quantitative. It's almost never about the highest price because whatever the the SPAC might indicate they think the value is, it is only real if it's validated by the capital markets investors via the back end. And so what's most important is the qualitative issues. What do they bring to the table? Do they have um, real insights they can add to you uh, as a public company? Do they have credibility in the capital markets to help raise the capital um, and, you know, Will they, it, when, the, when you move forward, will they be valuable on your board? Uh, because you're going to be living with these folks on your board for a while.
0: So just to sort of like put it all together, there's a natural reason it sounds like why the SPAC boom is also very heavily concentrated in a lot of these sort of uh, new energy, uh, alternative tech type things in which money is important for them to continue their development. But also, they really have sort of key strategic goals. So maybe for an enterprise software company in which the business is set, and then it's just a matter of growing it through the sales force, the SPAC, in addition to money, really brings in some um, strategic uh, alliances that are more needed to like get from point A to point B. I,
2: I think you're right for why 2020 was, when we say it was the year of the SPAC, or you said it actually not me why why that's where we saw the real breakthroughs it was those kind of businesses you know where there's a huge amount of investment for the payoff in the future by the way, the deepest capital market in the world is not the private market it's still the u s public market and so uh, getting access to that capital was helpful and you're and so I would agree with your thesis. I do think that's going to broaden out though because I think that you know we're starting to see and it probably software companies that are coming down this path, I think what will you know it really depends on the nature that anytime you see this much activity um, it forces everyone to look at it it's a little bit i I use example and maybe it's because I'm a old convertible bond originator of the convertible bond market, which is uh, you know over the last thirty years there's been periods where it seemed like every company in the world was doing a convertible bond, and then there's been periods where literally there's almost no issuance for eighteen months or twenty four months and the only companies that come are growth companies looking for another way to raise capital. And so I think that we should look at what's happened with SPACs as when this settles down to a natural equilibrium, and we will, we will find an equilibrium, it will be one of the choices facing companies that think about going public. And for certain situations where they either like the certainty of the capital at a price that comes from it, they like the corporate governance benefits of picking the board members Uh, that bring real quality, by the way, they might not be able to get as good a a, a set of board members if they went a natural path, particularly for smaller companies. Your typical billion dollar company coming to the market is still a relatively small company in the US market today. So they they might end up with a much better board by selling to a SPAC than they would if they went the normal IPO path, raising $150 million, et cetera. So there's a lot of things in there. But we are seeing it broaden out. I would say if we think about 21, I think what will be interesting is you're going to see more companies in areas where they're willing to go the IPO path. They would normally go and spend six months, nine months with all the process. But if they can move quicker, they can get a deal done in three months via a deal with a SPAC, they can raise more capital that way than they might by doing another private round and then coming back with the IPO in the second half. I think you're going to see that they're going to say, you know what? SPACs are more acceptable now. It's no longer a four-letter word um, in the negative right. way. And what you'll see is companies that otherwise would have done an IPO that might come to the SPAC market. Uh, again, not because it's not going to diminish the benefit of the IPO process. It's just going to be another choice. Um, but we'll see it broaden out.
1: Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit.
0: You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: It's interesting that you're talking about these trends sort of coming and going in capital markets. One of the big trends just a year or two ago was this idea that public markets were dead and that these big tech companies or these growing tech companies were going to stay in the private market forever, because why would they ever bother to IPO when they can get as much money as they want uh, through private fundraising? So I'm curious, when it comes to SPACs, why bother going public at all if capital is, is plentiful in the private
2: market? Yeah, that, that is a, a great question. And I think it comes back to the reflections uh, of when you look at the abyss of March, again, my example being comparing it back to other periods of time when the markets dried up. When you're in the public capital markets, you have a, the deepest market available to you for raising capital. You might have to in a difficult market accept a deeper discount to raise equity than you would in a more buoyant market, but you have a marketplace uh, where people meet every day uh, and agree on price and size. Um, that's just not true in the private market. The private market get, you know, if you th- I, I like to say when the public market gets a cold, the private market gets the flu. You know, unfortunately, when you're dependent on the private market, it works great so long as each successive round can be done at a higher value, uh, and the market is fairly po- fairly good. If you looked at the amount of private capital that was put to work from March one to say the end of June it wasn't a lot. And if you were a company that was living saying, I can wait another two years to go public because I can always keep raising money in the private market at higher levels, when all of a sudden that doesn't work anymore. Because since the public market's down 25%, the private market's shut. Unless you're willing to do a down round at a very, very big discount, it all of a sudden opened up eyes again to really a generation of entrepreneurs and their venture backers. Again, I say it that way, because you know a lot of folks who are running venture capital funds and entrepreneurs that you know they were in high school in you know two thousand and eight they don't remember the challenges of a very difficult market, so I think it made reminded them of while wow, the public market really does have a value, it's there to be the place where folks who want to transact in the deepest pool of capital in the world get to transact on a daily basis and so I do think that you can't separate that from what happened in 2020. And that's why SPACs have taken off again. It's also where you're seeing more companies go public. Look, you mentioned Snowflake before. And again, I'm, I don't want to speak about particular companies. Sure. I think there's something to be said about why are all these very large tech companies coming to going public now? Well, because at some point, your investors need liquidity. You know, the, the average venture capital company, if you look back a decade ago, um, tended to have a monetization event usually around seven to 10 years. What's happened post the, the, the financial crisis is it's st- stretched out to 10 or 12 years. That's a long time for venture capitalists to have their money locked up. It's a long time for the founders, the employees they've hired to not have monetization. And so what we're seeing is it's not that they don't go public. They just waited three or four more years because they could. But they ultimately are either going to be sold or come to the public market because at some point the folks who risked capital a decade ago need to get that capital redeployed. And so I I think we're in a period of growth of public companies for the first time since, you know, maybe go back to Sarbanes Oxley, you know, for the first time since that. I also think it's why you're seeing the advent of the private exchange market where we're seeing, you know, a lot more activity where companies are allowing their historical investors to trade in the secondary market privately, pre-IPO, because they recognize that 10 years is a long time for people to keep their capital tied up. So all that leads to this symbiotic relationship between private capital for the early stage and then ultimately going to the public market when it's a more established company. I
0: I mean, you you make uh, a compelling case that, A, public markets are the sort of deepest pool of uh, liquidity when uh, companies need it, that there are a lot of companies who 10 years ago got their first private funding, and it's now time for them uh, to realize some of that. Just cynically though, it certainly seems like, and I hate, um, I won't use the word bubble, but it certainly seems like valuations on public markets not only are high by historical measures of other public markets, but that the companies going public are enjoying a pretty nice premium of from their last private market valuations in many of these cases, and so I'm curious if there is to what extent is some of this re-equitization, the re-expansion of public market just sort of a recognition that if you have a good asset, if you have a company that's private or something like that, there's a decent chance that you can get a higher valuation right now on public markets.
2: Yeah, there's no question that all else constant right if you if you again if we had an academic uh, uh, finance professor on, they'd say the same company private versus public uh, should always Shouldn't trade at a higher value in the public market oh, yeah. because, right. the pri- because the private market, I have to have a discount for the fact that I, I I can't get liquidity when I want it on a regular basis. So there's no question right. that, you know, this is true in many times. Today, I think it's even more true, but I, I'm not so sure it's as much about where the institutions live as, I think one of the things that we're seeing is, particularly for hyper growth companies or the opportunity for real growth, in areas that are transformative, I do think that we're seeing a generational shift. We're seeing uh, many of these businesses, and this is true whether it be existing public companies, whether it be companies that go to the public market via an IPO, direct listing, or SPACs. That, um, in some respect, the you know the, the quote unquote Hood investors uh, often uh, are taking over the stocks for some period, and that dynamic where um investors who are looking for that next great investment theme are coming in uh and buying these stocks they are often bidding them to levels that broadly speaking the, neither the research analysts nor the institutional investors seem to be fully agreeing with those valuations and you know that that happens in, in a market uh when there's a lot of growth we've seen it before and those stories tend to Retreat after that buying is exhausted, and we've seen some of that in twenty. I think we'll see more of that in twenty-one, uh, as uh, you know, newer investors decide to come in in the aftermarket without necessarily having all the research and knowledge of what the right valuation should be. Now, those folks are not—they're not involved in the IPOs, not involved in the initial setting of yeah. values. They come in the aftermarket, and again, you know, that's that's part of uh, you know the marketplace.
0: So Larry I mean one of the things that you um, mentioned early on is that now investors kind of have three distinct uh, routes to going public there's the traditional IPO or sorry uh, companies have three distinct routes to going public there's the traditional IPO there's the SPAC. and then there's the direct listing and um, we we talked about this on an earlier episode, but it looks like regulations will allow such that uh, companies could actually raise money uh, through direct listings so that they can not only come public and get liquidity, but actually get uh, cash for the uh, new cash, which they couldn't previously do. And then you have like a lot of like long longtime uh, sort of Silicon Valley types, super critical of the traditional IPO, the cut that banks get, the, um, the premium, the so-called money left on the table. What do you see is the future of the uh, traditional IPO? Is it necessarily going to survive? And for what kinds of companies does it make the most sense if there are these uh, other either faster or, or cheaper routes to going public?
2: Well, again, I do think that you should actually do a separate podcast just on that question. Because yeah, I, think, I know. I know. I'm sure
0: we could have you back if you want. We could just, uh,
2: yeah, even the concept <laughs> of cheaper is something you have to think about because, right. you know, in a direct listing, is an advisory fee that would be paid on the entire value of the company. Uh, oh, whereas wow. the IPO fee is only paid on the amount of shares that are sold into the marketplace. And so it, again, I leave that to the academics because I think there's an argument that at times the, the expenses are actually very similar. I, I, I think the, the biggest issue I would just raise, I'll even add a fourth path that some companies will take, which is there's also reverse mergers that have been around forever, where a company ends oh, up right. you know, bringing with them capital and buys an existing entity, and now they go public that way. So listen, I think that the the most important thing, and this is where I do, I may not agree with all the the perspectives every loud investor might raise about direct listing versus this versus that. But I think that by having choices, that a company can determine what they want with their boards, they make the most informed decisions for where they are. So companies, for example, that, that are not necessarily going to be $20 billion companies on day one, they know that they need to have a real following. Um, as, as I would have said back in my convertible bond days, you know, where the bond needs to be sold, it's not just bought. Um, in those situations, lining up you know, research analysts that really understand the story. Having you know a road roadshow to meet with you know dozens and dozens of investors to build up that interest for that to have a successful launch as a public company that's still true for most companies um, you know the the majority of companies that come public are not at ten billion dollar valuations they're companies that maybe they're seven fifty or a billion or a billion and a half and those companies require having significant interest in order for them to be able to be stable public companies. And so the IPO path or a a, a variant of that, maybe with a SPAC where they have a pipe attached and they can do a deep roadshow with investors, I think that's still going to be where the majority of companies that want to go public come through. But the direct listings work for certain entities. And, and you know, again, it's why there's chocolate and vanilla. The last thing I think that I'd Mm -hmm. want to share as part of a 20 look back in the capital markets is just, I do think... That, and we, you know, we talked about it a little bit when we talked about some of the sustainable stories that came to market. I don't think we should overlook that 2020, I think will be viewed for the capital markets as the year that sustainability or sustainable investments came to, uh, came to the market in a real way. And I think when we look back 10 years from now and say all the awful things about the pandemic and, you know, the enormous challenges society faced on a lot of fronts, um, one of the, the real positives will be that stories that were focused on solving some of you know the the, the globe's biggest problems were able to get funded, um, and that more and more investors and investors are looking to put capital to work in funds that invest in sustainable opportunities. And so, it's not lost on me, at least, that 2020 was a year for that. Maybe it's because we got reminded of how interconnected we all are. But right. you know, I think it's a, a great thing. That stories that do everything from sustainable farming to energy transition to solving lots of other problems around, you know, the limited resources we have are getting funded in the private and the public market in a way that just wasn't happening in 1819 in a deep way. And so I hope that, you know, we'll find that the 20s is a decade of these great ideas that hopefully will become key parts of becoming energy independent and all those things. Um, you know, uh, that we'll look back at 2020 as the turning point for that.
0: Larry, this is really appreciate you uh, joining us. Maybe we'll, do, maybe we'll just have you back in a few weeks to talk about IPOs or maybe maybe in a year or something. But you're you're, uh, you're sort of a breadth of knowledge on this and your insight. Super helpful and uh, clearing up a lot of questions that I think both Tracy and I had. Well, it was
2: my pleasure. And uh, hopefully we have a uh, a healthier 2021. Let's just say that. Since uh, yeah, indeed. nothing's, nothing's a... more in our mind than that. And uh, mm. so, anyway, without question.
0: All right, thanks, Larry. Thanks. Thanks so much, Larry. Cheers. Tracy, I found that. Uh, super helpful you know i i do think that for a long time throughout last year uh still and i guess maybe still am a little bit like what's really the deal with like Spac's? like is it really a good vehicle how much of it is just about getting that pop or finding some sexy story that you can flip to robin hood investors or whatever but i'm starting to buy <laughs> the idea that it is a reasonable um a a reasonable vehicle for a lot of companies. That's probably going to be with us uh, to stay for a while.
1: I'm going to reserve judgment for at least one economic cycle and and see what happens. Okay. I will say, I, like that.
0: Yeah.
1: I will say, when Barkbox announced that it was going public through a, a SPAC, uh, most of the commentary I saw about that just was talking about Pets.com and the sort of two thousands internet bubble that was yeah. the first thing that people were talking about but Larry did make this interesting point about how certain capital market structures tend to become trendy at certain times and yeah. and I do you do see that in 2020 this idea of trying to escape market volatility or the uncertainty of an IPO process by going the SPAC route that's certainly the case but I guess my question is As things start to normalize in 2021, are SPACs going to um, not be as popular as as they were last year?
0: Right. I mean, I think that was actually probably what helped me the most because I still I was not satisfied or I still like it was like the why now question, because it's like, okay, you can lay out a list of arguments for why for uh, a lot of companies. The SPAC route makes sense. But I was still uh, hung up for a long time. I was like, yeah, but why now? What was it about 2020 in particular that caused this to catch fire? And I think Larry did a good job and helped me, at least to some extent, understand what it was about this moment. I mean, there was obviously a lot of appetite for sort of new technology, uh, transformational tech. There was the market volatility of the moment that maybe made traditional IPO roads. IPO route's too risky or too long, too much of a long cycle. The need for public market liquidity, uh, You know his uh, analogy about, you know, it's like uh, when the public market gets a cold, the private market gets a flu. And so just wanting to have that uh, public market currency. So I can start to see from that conversation why a number of things sort of did come together in that moment to produce what Turned out to be a pretty extraordinary year. Like I wouldn't have guessed it, obviously, going back in the spring. But there's enough sort of moving parts that I could say, okay, I could sort of uh, this makes sense why why it happened.
1: Yeah, I guess the question is whether or not that experience of early 2020 is so ingrained that companies will always consider spacs as a as a financing option. Like one of the many things they can pull off the shelf. One of the many options. Forever or or whether it's sort of like this one time thing. I guess it gets back to Larry's point about how capital decisions are. They should be strategic. Right. But I think often like people don't really. Sorry, I can't talk today. They should be strategic But I think often people tend to make a shorter term decision. So they might just be jumping on the SPAC bandwagon rather than actually thinking it through. Basically, I'm saying I'm unsure whether or not. um, Never mind. Cut the basically I'm saying thing. No, but
0: I get get what you're saying. It makes a lot of sense. You know, I, I do think broadly, and this is a topic that we have to come back to, like we have to talk about what is the future of the traditional IPO because they've been assailed by critics for a long time lots of critics of the pop and the uh, implication that the company is leaving a lot of money on the table with this uh big gap lots right. of critics
1: of the pricing uh, paying underwriters
0: yeah paying underwriters you know it's I'm also curious um whether whether things like roadshow or educating analysts is as important in a world in which we have the internet and can learn about companies uh, through all different kinds of ways and we have Sort of uh, amateur analysts on Twitter and then their newsletter who don't learn about a company through the traditional routes. How much that could is intermediating the need for the traditional road road roadshow. So, I think uh, this should be a big topic for us this year.
1: Yeah, for sure. I uh, I sense a IPO series coming on.
0: Oh yeah, I love that. And oh, you know, also just uh, the uh, you know we did that episode in the past about direct listings. They have right. since gotten approval, I think. So I think there's the total green light for direct listings with a capital raise. It'll be super interesting to see what companies, when presented with that option, how many of them uh, go down that route. And lots, lots to talk about.
1: Yeah, I think there's definitely a- enough going on um, to have a series. All right. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave it there. This has been another episode of the All Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Jill Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at Podcasts. Thanks for listening.